0: Progressive Rugby League. Once you get out of any habit, it can be hard to kickstart things again. And so it has been for this little baby of ours, mine and yours, the PRL Book Club. But if there's any book that's going to turn your little host, John O'Duncan, Duncan, from bear in hibernation to bear at salmon run, it's today's centerpiece. So the 1980s, for someone born in that decade, it's hard to fathom just how much the 1980s changed the way we see the world and how a lot of what was embedded in the 80s is still central to our lives today. The global marketplace, the aspirational class, individualism, brand building, image making, government as impediment, nothing wild about those concepts in 2023. And you could argue that's because of the prevailing narrative, wrong or right, that was cemented in the 80s, and which, all things considered, has maintained a pretty strong grip since. And for rugby league, a sport born in northern England in 1895 of contrasting values, local pride, class struggle, collectivism, community, what would the 80s have in store, and how would the sport react? This tension is at the heart of a fascinating new book, Hope and Glory, Rugby League in Thatcher's Britain, by UK political, labour and rugby league historian Anthony Broxton. Anthony is perhaps best known as editor of the Tides of History Project, delving into labour history, British politics and working class culture. He's also a returning guest to the Progressive Rugby League podcast after helping provide a pulse check on the British game in August 2022. Anthony Broxton, welcome back to the Progressive Rugby League podcast and congrats on the book. Thank you very much to come back again i think last
1: time we talked about the problems of british rugby league today bet fred uh, img on the horizon mm. and now we're going to go back a little bit further but there's obviously
2: with you know a lot of contemporary history lots of lessons for today
1: uh, for british rugby league and hopefully
0: australian as well absolutely yeah it's it's great to have you back on board anthony it's it's a book that that throws up so many potential avenues for discussion. It's a real uh, choose your own adventure, it was for me anyway. So let's uh, see where this takes us, shall we? Perhaps the best place to start to make sense of British rugby league and, and Great Britain in the 80s is the 70s. Now, how was British society evolving in the 70s, and why is it important to understand before we delve into what became of the 80s? What do we need to know about what was going down there?
1: Yeah, context is everything, particularly when you're on- You can't just start uh, with, you know, day one of the 1980s and hope to tell the story of that decade. Margaret Thatcher herself, who became prime minister in 1979, had spent a lot of her time as leader of the Conservative Party, a time when the Conservative Party weren't very popular, talking about the decline of Britain. And this sort of idea of British decline in the 1970s just became embedded in politics, in culture, in industry, in society. And lots of people have written books about how Britain declined in the 1970s. And it wasn't so much that Britain declined from where it once was in the 1970s. It was the fact that everything that had sort of gone wrong with British industry, joining Europe losing empire, all these things, they all sort of meet in the 1970s when things start to change, like you get changes in the welfare state, you get changes to employment, and you get the big one, which is deindustrialisation, where lots of, you know, factories, warehouses, cotton mills, coal mines, mm. all the areas that have underpinned rugby league since its inception, they decline. Mm. So obviously there's an idea that rugby league is going to decline with it because there's a lot less money in the game. And in the 1970s, Rugby League people, organisers, supporters, they still had long memories of the 1950s. And the 50s had been an absolute boom for the sport. It had been a time when a club like Wigan would have 50,000 people go and watch it. Mm. By the late 1970s, early 1980s, they were down to about 1,000, 2,000 people watching them a week. They would get relegated. Mm -hmm. A club like Bradford, who could attract 100,000 people to a Challenge Cup at Oddsall, the famous Challenge Cup final, which is the, the record crowd for Rugby League fixture. Mm. By the 60s and 70s, that club is busted to play in front of a few hundred people. Wow. So people really care about this. They, they remember the glory days. but It's not like they've given up. They still believe that Rugby League can become a national game. And that's basically where the 1980s begins. Rugby League's image in Britain is quite poor for some reasons we might talk about. And people come on board who say, we have to change this, we have to become a sport that is modern, dynamic, and fit for the 1980s, and that's basically where the book begins.
0: Great, and we'll get to a lot of that as we go through. Now, as I've mentioned, the book is called Hope and Glory, Rugby League in Thatcher's Britain. Now, Margaret Thatcher is obviously a towering global figure from that era and possessed a a certain ideology she was keen on implementing in the 80s, but of course, a lot of the world, including Australia, was responding to similar challenges of dealing with high inflation and high unemployment. Um, for Australians who haven't delved too deeply into UK political history, what was the Thatcher in Thatcher's Britain and why did it rankle uh, with certain parts of the UK, including areas synonymous with rugby league? Yeah,
1: so what you see in 1979 is a real change election, as, as they call it in, in this country, because for a long time there have been a, an acceptance between the political parties that maintaining unemployment levels was the key to economic growth and the key to basically creating, you know, a thorough society. Now, there was always going to be differences between Labour and Tory on how Labour and the Conservative
2: Party over here, on how they achieve that, mm-hmm. who, you know, how much they would spend on welfare,
1: which industries they protect, how they would invest. But the Conservative Prime Ministers before Margaret Thatcher had lived through the 1930s. They'd seen unemployment in the areas that they were from, and they'd been scarred by it. A lot of them had served in the war as well, so there was a bit more of a sort of communal feel Mm -hmm. to the politics. Now, people dispute that and say it wasn't as nice and and homely as that, and it wasn't. But there was an overarching economic strategy that believed that if unemployment went over one million, that was really bad for society, government for for everything else. Mm. Margaret Thatcher adopts a very different economic approach, which is about, without getting too techy, reducing inflation by cutting the money supply, the amount of money that is in the economy. And to do that, there are massive cuts to industry, so lots of industries such as steel go to the wall, the mines, which will become a battle later on. Mm. Huge subsidies to the mining industry in the 1970s because there's a belief that we need to protect these jobs even if they aren't actually producing much money for the country. We'll subsidise those jobs because we want to keep people in in employment and not on welfare.
2: Hmm.
1: Margaret Thatcher slowly over the nineteen eighties begins to change that and says that they won't protect these industries any longer. And it's the North that gets hit quite hard by that and deindustrialization. And the North never really takes the Margaret Thatcher. There are obviously some people that will always vote conservative in these areas, but as I outline in the book, most of the areas where Rugby League is played still vote Labour in 1979, they still continue to vote Labour afterwards.
2: Mm.
1: So there is still a a divide within Britain between the people that think that we need to move on, modernise the economy, become a more services country, and the ones who want to protect the industrial
0: heart at any cost. Yep. Okay, well, thank you for that. Now, I'm going to try to take us from Bob Hawke to Feathers and Rovers, and then I'm going to ask you to take us from there. So let's see if any of this makes sense, because it's just so interesting as an Australian to read this book and to learn a bit more about what was happening in the UK at that time and how it compared with what was happening in Australia. Like I said, uh, you know, lots of different challenges, but also some similar challenges and, and a similar conception to what needed to be done, you know, essentially to open... The economy up to the world and to work out how working people would fit into that shifting landscape, but a totally different way of approaching things, obviously a product of the different sides of politics that were in power in Australia and the UK, uh, but, you know, a really stark contrast between how the Hawke and Thatcher governments approach things. Uh, the distinction has essentially been summed up as consensus versus confrontation. And the Australian consensus was made possible because the party in government from 983 was the Labour Party and its leader, Bob Hawke, was a former leader of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the ACTU. And while it wasn't easy, it made constructive agreement between the government and organised labour possible. And the, the prices and income accord was the manifestation of that agreement. Broadly speaking, the unions restricted wage demands on the proviso that the government provided a broader safety net. More to it than that, but that's the nub. Which is something that, um, you know, British politicians had as well in the 1970s. We had our own pay boards and our own agreements with the trade unions. Right. I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's exactly what Margaret Thatcher was totally against. She believed that it failed in the 1970s and that, you know, there'd been an agreement between, like you say, we'll subsidise certain things, government would, such as housing and Mm. welfare, if you keep, you know, wage demands down, and that all blew up in yep. the winter of discontent, as it is known, which we won't get into, but essentially brings down the Labour government
1: and opens the floor for Thatcher. So I'm glad you mentioned that because that was something that British
0: politics did have in the 1970s and another area where there the was once agreement. And, you know, of course, as you're saying, it, it's pretty obvious that the relationship, while there was consensus in Australia, the relationship between the Thatcher Conservative government and the union movement was, you know, strained to say the least and confrontation was common. And one of the focal points of that dynamic was the coal mining town and rugby league hotbed of Featherston. Now, can you take us through what was happening in Featherston in the 80s and how that was emblematic of a change in Great Britain?
1: Yeah, it always comes back to Featherston, who <laughs> may, may become you know a Super League team in the next two weeks or so. So this is going to go full circle, potentially. Yeah. I think Featherston are like one of those clubs that everyone sort of romanticises in rugby league culture, even in Australia, because just the the constant fighting against the odds that they had to achieve. Mm. Probably the smallest catchment area in the whole of the Rugby League, very small area in between, you know, near Wakefield. And for most of the sort of 1960s and 1970s, they did pretty well. As in they overachieved beyond their means. They were able to build a team around miners, and they would continued to win Challenge Cups right up to 1983, you know, against the on, on a shooting budget. They were a community club that would rely on, you know, donations, fundraisers. I recount in the book that there was people who would, you know, run the London Marathon for the first time and they would raise money to sort of fix stands. This was the sort of club that Featherstone were. And for most of the, you know, 20th century, that was OK. They could still compete. But what happens in the 1980s is that, and this is the Rugby League aspect first, is that when the Australians arrive and Rugby League starts to become more professional, Featherston are a club that
2: are sort of against that. They think that we want to continue to produce local players from our industrial area. Hmm. Rugby League begins to change through the Australians, through
1: the professionalisation, through clubs like Wigan, and starts to leave people like Featherston behind. And then we get the secondary shock of the minor strike in 1985. Hmm. that also hits Featherston as well and I, I tell the story through the book through a player called Keith Bell who I had the pleasure of interviewing he was playing in that season he was working but the rest of the team were on strike you know he was stopped by police every time he tried to go to work because they thought he was a flying picket a flying picket is someone who would go to a coal mine and sort of Try and stop someone from going to work—a very controversial mm. issue in the British politics that is kind of forgotten about now—but mm. central to this, you know, battle over the future of the coal mines. And he was ultimately part of that. And from a rugby league perspective, it meant that the Featherston players who were playing that season during the minor strike, the only income that they had was the there was the winning and losing bonuses, which would be about you know 10, 15 pounds, mm. which meant they were absolutely desperate to win every single game. I spoke to Sean Edwards, you know, the great mm. rugby league player, now French defence coach, who told me that was the hardest game he ever played in in his life as a 17-year-old, <laughs> playing against these striking miners. The Featherstone players themselves, a lot of those were minors, played for the club at a weekend. So once the minor strike comes, they have to adjust to this new landscape. And I think that was a really important point, because that was... Rugby league culture in the 1980s, this was still a part-time game. You know, mm. you played rugby around your job. Mm-hmm. And for a long period, that helped Featherstone because they were a club that, you know, if you were a minor, you were one of the more tough rugby league players. Mm-hmm. They had a sort of pool of resources that they could go and tap into. There's a famous quote, I think from Eddie Waring, that is, if they needed a new prop forward, they would just have to whistle and someone would come out of, of the mine. <laughs> the minor strike is obviously the huge confrontation in british history as well as you know wider connotations that strike the day after the minor strike ends the, the Fenston pit acting colliery it never opens again a person mm. will never you know mine coal out of that area again and that obviously has a huge impact on fetherstone as an area mm. i do recount in the book actually that there's a sort of resistance to that mm. you know you, you see new industries emerge, you see people become taxi drivers, you see people get jobs in warehouses, there's an extra investment into like social services, so people become social workers. Mm. And by the end of the decade, there's still a thriving Featherston Club. People like Paul Love and Ikram Buck, for example, who I talk about in the book, come through, and there's still a representation in the Great Britain team of the Fethersen players. Mm. But it is the moment after that minor strike, that we stopped talking about Featherstone as a team that can win the Challenge Cup,
0: that can win the championship. And that comes from a decline in industry mm. and the money that's available. But it also comes in the fact that the rugby league itself has changed and it's yep. become a much more professional game and they just can't compete. All right, well, let's let's look at another rugby league hotbed that's a focus in the book. Now, Anthony, there are there are tons of Brits in Australia and I've worked with and befriended many. Uh, But from my experience, they're mostly from London and more broadly the southern half of the country. And as such, I've rarely been able to make a rugby league connection with these people despite my ongoing efforts. Now, generally speaking, rugby league word association games with these people are very short-lived. But what you do get out of them often includes the word Wigan. Now, Maybe that's somewhat a function of their dominance in the 80s, but Wigan has always been synonymous with British Rugby League, hasn't it? Why is that? It gives a sense of why Wigan holds such a storied place in British Rugby League. I think I recount in the first chapter why Wigan actually holds a place in the British psyche as much as it does within rugby league culture. I
1: think this is part of the reason. Hmm. When you want to talk about decline in Britain, and this happens all the time at various points, journalists and commentators and historians they always end up in wigan um i think it's you know maybe something to do with george orwell connection george orwell a british writer wrote a book road to wigan pier which was about you know poverty in the 1930s right. and he could have gone to anywhere in britain he could have gone to the northeast he could have gone to london he could have gone to any of these sort of areas that um had real deprivation but he went to wigan and the title of the books roads Wigan Pier. So I think everybody since has been like, what's this mythological Wigan place? Mm-hmm. What's it all about? The rugby league side of it obviously comes off the back of that. Once Wigan become a dominant rugby league team in the 1950s, there's a lot more interest in Wigan than there would have been in a St. Helens or another club. Mm-hmm. And that's just to do with the sort of psyche as I've outlined. A magazine called Picture Post, which which I look at in the book, you know, would do these like features on you know, British culture and society. And they end up in Wigan one one time in the nineteen fifties, writing this major feature on the club that can rival Manchester United and mm-hmm. in terms of the you know football style and attendances. I think that's where it essentially, you know, comes from. Wigan becomes phenomenal with this, you get players like Billy Boston mm-hmm. and they become the sort of dominant rugby league side in the UK. By the 90, early nineteen eighties that is obviously massively in retreat. Wigan have kind of become a bit of a laughing stock they've stopped engaging with the media, they've stopped signing top players they've been unable to replicate the glory years of the 1950s and they get relegated at the beginning of the decade, which is where I open Mm. the book and most people actually think that this is just a normal thing that's going to happen we had clubs like Swinton and Huddersfield they never came back, well Huddersfield eventually did, but they didn't in the 1980s I think people thought that Wigan would do the same thing and it's only because of Maurice Lindsay and the other people who came on board to actually revive the club and Maurice Lindsay becomes a huge figure in the book. I'm sure we'll mention him at some point mm. in this podcast. Surprise to not mentioned him so far. That must be a record <laughs> for the movie I've done so far. But yeah, so it's not written in the stars that Wigan has to be this top rugby league club as we know they have been and they have been for like, you know, the last twenty years again. But they are fundamental to the idea of rugby league in Britain. And like you say, if, if anybody... And this sort of comes from the 1980s, I think, more. If you ask anyone in London
0: or South East yet in any rugby league club, it would be Wigan for those reasons. Mm, fantastic. Now, Anthony, there's a, a great chapter in your book on the influence of players of West Indian descent, Ellery Hanley, Des Drummond, Henderson Gill, What I didn't realise is that their their rise coincided with a a public debate within the the British right about whether there should be a mass deportation of West Indians from Britain. Uh, But rugby league seemed to thrust these players into the limelight, particularly people like Harry Edgar, a seemingly forward-thinking media proprietor. What were people like Mm. Harry trying to achieve?
1: That's a really good question, and I I really enjoyed... I actually spoke to Harry Edgar for the book because, you know, open rugby is the equivalent of rugby league week in australia right mm-hmm. and harry edgar i can't remember the name of the rugby league week editor in the 1980s now but harry edgar you know was close to the editor and spoke to him a lot about how you sort of set up a magazine mm-hmm. it, let's go back to the early 1970s uh, late 1970s there wasn't any rugby league magazine there was a newspaper which was just you know match reports and transfer gossip mm-hmm and things like that and to write for that newspaper you had to be an accredited rugby league journalist which not a lot of people were harry edgar looked at the fanzine movement you know uh, and i relate into the book like the punk culture of fanzines mm-hmm. that was happening in britain at the British time where people were just you know going to gigs writing a report about the sex pistols or the clash or whatever and then selling it outside gigs and harry edgar sort of had this idea that why don't you Use the new technology that's been created to do that for rugby league. Mm. And that's how open rugby starts. It's like a little free sheet of four pages on a typewriter. I've actually got one of them at home and it's like so sort of, you know, uh, punk in its ethos, <laughs> spelling, spelling mistakes and Tipex on it. <laughs> but he
0: was just handing them out at the game and loads of
1: people were coming up to him saying, oh, this is an absolutely fantastic idea. Like, how can I write for it? How can I buy it? And it just sort of snowballed from there, from speaking to him. And by the end of the 1980s, you know, a bit of a long time in advance, it's the predominant major space Mm -hmm. for ideas and debate. And that was something that he wanted to create. He had an opportunity at the beginning of the 1980s to move back north, to go and create this magazine, or not. And he decided to do that. And I think the battle of ideas within rugby league that happened in the 1980s happens on the pages of Open Rugby mm. and it wouldn't have happened if he decided not to make that decision and move back up north and create this magazine that went on to become a great success so he was sort of part of that Thatcherite idea he probably wouldn't like me to compare him to that but sort of doing it for yourself and actually going out there and creating something new mm. he then became part of this huge media you know landscape of the 1980s on the actual point about creating superstars which is what he wanted to do mm. he recognized quite early on from watching ellery hanley as a teenager that this guy was going to be a superstar probably the first person to really recognize that mm. and he makes a decision to put people like him and des drummond and Henderson gill on the cover of the magazines at the time as you say when there's a huge debate in britain about the role of these people you know it seems quite alien Mm. for like my generation now to think of this sort of debate but there was you know let's give it a bit more context in the 1950s we had the windrush generation and that was people from the west indies and surrounding areas that moved to britain uh, to sort of build the new welfare state the nhs Mm. the hospitals the schools the houses and Ellery Hanley, Des and Henderson Gill, their parents were part of that Windrush generation uh, and, and, and built that, you know, future. Mm. So by the time that they're coming through to the Great Britain side, you know, starts to play rugby in the, in the early 1980s, there's a wider debate about unemployment amongst the children of the Windrush generation. Mm. A lot of, you know, black people in the early 1980s struggled to find work. And when we had some riots in Brixton and in Toxteth and in other areas, which were clashes between police and the community about the way that black people were treated on a daily basis. Mm. Lots of conservative politicians talked about repatriation and really pushed for this idea that these people will never be British. They don't have a British culture you know, they don't sort of tie up to our beliefs in law and authority and all the rest of it. And you, could, you can imagine it, right? You can read mm. your Daily mm. Mail, your Daily Telegraph, all these newspapers. What do we do about this black problem? They call it that the blacks problem. Mm. And Ellery Hamley, Ed truman and Henderson Gill would have been swept up in that because they were children of this generation. Mm. And they were the sort of people, had they not been playing rugby league, you probably would have been unemployed and the ones that were, they were unemployed. And I just thought that was interesting that Harry Egger took the decision to actually say, no, these are the best of British, they aren't the people that you talk about, they represent us, and they represent the best that sport has to offer, and that was in the early days, obviously they all went on to become superstars Mm. in their own right, and by the end of the decade, nobody would have said, Ellery Hanley, you're not the best of British yeah. but at the very beginning they were playing in a really hostile environment politically and there was obviously you know racism on the field you know I look at Elliot Hamley. he talks a lot about how you know that shaped his mindset as a player mm. knowing that you know he was he was going to be hit off the ball and he was going to receive racist abuse from both players and spectators and, and that sort of created this character that we all know now.
0: Yeah and he becomes one of the great Players for, for Great Britain as well. And international footy, uh, speaking of, is, is a big part of the UK Rugby League story of the 80s. Uh, people my age, born in the 80s, will remember the big games of the early 90s in those storied grounds, Wembley, Old Trafford, you know, huge crowds, enormous buzz. But only 20 years earlier, these things uh, were looking pretty bleak when Rugby League kind of embarrassed itself by only attracting 13,000 people to Wembley in 1973. How do we get from that Uh, to the huge Wembley crowds of the early 90s, you know, 70,000 for the World Cup final of 1992. Who drove that ambition and and that delivery?
1: It is is a remarkable turnaround when you think about it. I mean, I was looking at that, because that that 1973, uh, I think it's the first test at Wembley, which I think Great Britain actually won, which Mm. is quite a rarity as well. They'd invited Ted Heath, the Prime Minister, the Conservative Prime Minister there as well it was just a huge embarrassment for the game Mm. Um, and he was on BBC and it was just Wembley all you could see if you look back at the footage is like empty terraces Mm. and I think it was the Australian manager or the general manager said we'll never come back to London again Mm. because this this is just not uh, economically viable the first thing that happens in terms of London itself is you get the rise of Fulham in the early 1980s which I look at again, mm-hmm. you know, that was the first time that they had a professional or semi-professional club in the South. There's a huge buzz around that Fulham club. The media get involved with it. The Daily Mirror, of the Sun, the Daily Mail, the day after, they play their first game. They say, wow, Rugby League's arrived in the South and it isn't going to go away. And obviously, a lot's happened in the 40 years since yeah. Fulham arrived. But a lot of people, you know, through Fulham watch rugby league for the first time. I know most importantly a lot of media people, you know, like tabloid sports shirtless. Then you also get, you know, the rise of the kangaroos and the invincible team who reawaken sort of rugby league in this country. We probably haven't got too much time to go into depth of it and I've talked about it in other places. Mm. But that nineteen eighty two Invincible tour really did change the way that people viewed rugby league and what it could be. So when they return in 1986 there's a real expectation within the British organisers, people like David Oxley who are running the game, that we have to put on a show mm-hmm. for the Australians. And that's why they decide to not take a game to Wembley, they take a game to Old Trafford. Mm. That's a huge gamble. Everyone's like, why are you taking a game to a football ground? Football, we don't like going to football grounds. They've got cages up because of hooliganism, mm. and it's more expensive, and it's in a city, and we, we want to we keep it at Salford and Swinton and Oldham and Rochdale and keep the money in the game. And letter after letter goes into the Open Rugby and the Rugby League to say, don't do this. Even great French, I think, says something like, you know, I'm not sure it'll work. But, obviously, because the Australians are what they were and there's a good marketing campaign and it's in, a, it's in a, a huge city like Manchester, it's a huge success. And that first test of the 1986 Kangaroo Tour against Australia, I think, breaks the record, 50,000 for mm. a test of it, which then gives this idea of, let's take it again to Wembley. Next time, we've got to take it to Wembley. Mm. Yeah. And all of that growth comes through the Australian side and the fact that the British players who have emerged in that period want to beat Australia. Mm -hmm. They want to be Australia, they want to be as professional as them, they want to play like them, they want to train like them, they also want to beat them eventually and knock them off their perch. There's still a competitive rivalry between the two nations. I said this on another podcast, I think it was with Tony Collins, can Mm -hmm. you imagine writing this story without Australia in it. The kangaroos just don't exist. And it, 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 that's the saddest thing about rugby league today, that we've lost the Great Britain or England and Australia rivalry. Yeah, Because I think that was the thing that drove standards, drove ambition, drove the size of the game in this country. And, yeah, so to answer your question, it was, I think, due to the kangaroos. And also, you know, clubs like Wigan and others were looking at what the other Australian clubs were doing, you know, in the the Sydney competition. Mm -hmm. And you have your World Cup challenge, Wigan and Manly, another
0: huge, you know, stepping stone for the development of the game in this country. But without the international game and without that competitive nature between the two countries, I think British rugby league looks completely different in this decade right okay there you go there i was thinking that uh the australian influences it was all an extension of the uk's weird obsession with neighbors in the 80s and i thought you guys were just subconsciously trying to get close to jason donovan but okay it was well, for the
1: people who've not read the book yet there are many references to australian culture crocodile dundee foster neighbors all of which and that is a very good part we joke a little bit about it yeah Australian culture becomes quite big in the UK. Like I say, Kylie mm. and Jason, absolutely huge stars mm-hmm. in this country. They're, they're, they're brought on board to promote the 1990 Ashes series in a sort of attempt to do our own version of Tina Turner. It doesn't? It's not really as memorable. I don't think Jason Donovan have the song as strong um, as. <laughs> What you get is what you see, or simply the best, unfortunately. But um, you know, the idea was that yeah. Foster's is, a, is, a, is, a, is something that I look at quite intently in the book mm. because Maurice Lindsay, when he's trying to get a sponsor for the 1987 World Cup Challenge, doesn't want to go with Whitbread, which is a, a northern beer company, or you know, they couldn't have sort of like going with Betfred or Mushy Peas or the rest of yeah. it. Like, we need to get a cool sponsor. Mm-hmm. And the coolest sponsor and the, and the coolest, you know, adverts and they've got, at the time, in the UK was Foster's. Mm. You know, they actually radically changed the way that people made adverts in this country with Paul Hogan and mm-hmm. all the rest of it. And, like, they had started actually producing them and they would become the real arms race between the lager companies about who is going to establish lager in the pubs and clubs of, of Britain in the 1980s. So seeing the Australian link, Maurice Lindsay, sort of, Brokers this deal with Foster's, at the time, the largest sponsorship deal in British Rugby League history for one game. And all of it comes back to Wigan or Manly, this winner-take-all World Cup Challenge. And I just recount that as a sort of, you know, factor-eye opportunity that Maurice Lindsay saw to sort of change, you know, Mm. the the image of the sport through sponsor, which I know we've talked about in the past. Mm -hmm. Foster's now is a little bit sort of... People, you know, don't drink it as much in this country anymore. There are a lot more, you know, crap beers and other things. But at the time, yeah, Foster's was the number one. And to have it associated with rugby league was quite a coup, I think, for the game.
0: Yeah. It is hard for, for people my age to understand, born in the 80s, how... <laughs> Australian culture really did become cool in in uh, places like America and the UK in the eighties. It's a, it's a strange yeah. one to consider, but yeah, things like Crocodile Dundee, as, as weird as it sounds, made a big splash. And you're right about the um, there is a sadness that the Great Britain Australian rivalry has, it's basically disappeared. It's disappeared. mud it's mud it's and it's uh, I, you know, is it
1: nostalgia? maybe a little bit because we all remember those great great britain tours but it's just from a purely like we right so you know if you look at the cricket uh series, series that we just had in this country mm. that was huge for cricket over here mm. you know it was on the page it was on the back pages of the newspapers every day you know because of controversy because mm. of the rivalry because of the
2: individual storylines between like ben Stokes and pat cummings and sure broad and mm everybody else, and it's sort of like, we, we, we had that for a small period of time in British rugby league culture, you know, Mal Meninga would come over here, and he'd be subject to like two page profiles
1: mm. in the te- Daily Telegraph, in the Times, you know, because I've gone back and looked at all this sort of stuff, and it was incredible just how much respect there was for that Australian team. Mm. Bit sort of like you know a sort of Harlem Harlem Globetrotters or Chicago Bulls sort mm. of thing. The Australians are coming. You've got to go and watch them. Mm-hmm. Can we finally knock them off their perch after all these years? And it was a thing. It was a, when I spoke to Jonathan Davis. It was a thing that he really wanted to do when he switched codes. Like I wanted, I watched them Ashes series. Mm. And I wanted to play against Australia for Great Britain. Yeah. And now we've lost that. There's nothing for a British rugby league player to aspire to. You know, you know. Say you're a, you know, a young player coming through the ranks. Jack Wellsby. Let's give it to contemporary mm. analysis. Don't think he's played Australia yet. Mm. I'm pretty sure he wasn't in that 2017 World Cup squad. So that's six years. Mm. You know, and it, okay, we could have played you Australia in a World Cup final. Had things passed the different way in the, in the World Cup last year. But how have we had it that these two great teams, the two big rugby league playing nations? Mm have not played each other I, 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 just, I can't believe that we've got ourselves in this situation yeah. and I really do think it hammers everything that we're trying to achieve you know either internationally to in terms of growing the game but also what the British are trying to achieve which is essentially trying to save the sport yeah. is what they're trying to do with IMG you know series at the end of the season against Tonga is probably not going to cut through mm. in any way in comparison to the European World Cup which is happening right now which is absolutely huge yeah
0: well, I guess the good news is it can be revived because obviously England and Great Britain still haven't been in Australia in a long, long time. So the Holy Grail is still there. So, you you know, you can easily bring that back and say, look, it's been 40, 50 years and, you know, all that sort of, sort of stuff uh, builds up and, and it, it can become something. But uh, anyway, we, we could go on about that for, for a long time. So, Anthony, this book covers obviously a storied age for British Rugby League in which there seemed to be uh, great progress, so much so that there was talk rugby league could really crack the mainstream in the UK. Was that a really a genuine consideration or just a couple of journalistic thought bubbles? Because, of course, it, it didn't really end up happening and rugby league has probably receded in the public imagination in recent decades. Did, did rugby league miss an opportunity to take advantage of football's hooliganism-related woes of the 80s or was it inevitable that the behemoth that is football would ultimately reimpose itself on the nation's psyche?
1: It's a really good question. I, I certainly don't think it was inevitable. I think rugby league probably missed the opportunity to accelerate its growth more in the 1980s and early 1990s. I mean, there are lots of different arguments about, about this. For, to your first point, it was it was a genuinely real belief. Mm-hmm. People like Maurice Lindsay, who come along later people involved in the emergence of B, the people that are around the game, such as David Oxley, who wanted to expand into places like Kent and Fulham and Cardiff and Nottingham. There was this belief that Rugby League was such a good game and that it was so under-reported, respected, it was like a hidden secret, that all you really had to do was get it in front of people and they would love it. Mm. And you would do that through television. So, for example, you know, in the 1970s, you would probably have got like five, four games a year on TV. You know, half a half a game highlight. Like. So, for 1982 Kangaroo tour, for example, the great one that we talked about, only the second half was shown on TV. The second yeah. forty minutes of that first game was shot because it was part of a grandstand package of program. Yep. You know, it's only in 1986 when the game, moves all traffic gets bigger, that they actually start showing the full match. So when opportunities arrive, you know, you take in the games to Big Stadium, Australia has captured the public imagination. We've got a deal with B Sky B, which means a lot of club games are now gonna be shown. There's a belief, actually, wow, people are now gonna see this game unfiltered, with good presentation, positive coverage around it. You know, they'd always looked to Australian coverage of the game on television and gone. Why can't we be like that? Why do we have to be stuck with the BBC that produces so negatively? Mm. That there was a real optimism that it could do that. Now, we've had 20 or so years of... You can probably watch every single rugby league game now in
2: this country somehow, or you will do soon. Mm. But the the interest in it has not gone up. Mm. If anything, it's massively declined. There's a lot of newspapers that don't employ rugby league journals anymore. There aren't any national figures. So the idea
1: that the product alone can save the sport—that idea has completely disappeared. Mm. It now has to go back to marketing. It has to go back to the way that clubs organise their structure to get rid of things like relegation. Mm. The talk again about expansion: can we do it with just small clubs? Do we have to move into the cities again? So we're constantly stuck in this circle of how to make rugby league into a national game. You obviously can only do that if you expand nationally as well. You know, a club like Lee and Featherston, you know, Liu now doing quite well, mm. Featherston are due to come up. They aren't going to be able to compete on a global scale with a football club like Manchester United or even a Brighton, mm. you, you can sell the, you know, in a football terms, where you can sell the global rights to the Premier League football across the world. Mm. So it is an unbelievably different landscape now. Mm. And football has obviously changed this country that it's, you know, it's not even really worthy of the comparison anymore like the Premier League and the Super League like they are just on a completely different planets mm. in 1995 at the end of the book when Super League is formed
2: and I could recount this through the sort of way that the chairman of each club talked mm. about Super League, there was a genuine belief that by merging the clubs together by creating the super League by taking Rupert Murdoch's 87 million pounds. Mm that they could be as big as Premier League football and they
1: were just saying things like this is our shot to compete with the Premier League, this is the Mm. last chance we can do it and I think the Salford chairman at the time was like well we can rival Manchester United now that we've got this money and we'll merge with Oldham and we'll play at Old Trafford Mm. and it's hard to know whether they believed it or not for 24 to 48 hours they all believed it Mm. to try and sell the idea of mergers and Super League Mm. within two years of Super League you know that idea is sort of, gone again. Mm. But it's obviously never going to come back now, that optimism that it can be biggest Premier League football. Mm. I don't think, I mean, you get laughed out of town if IMG came in and said, well, we, we hope within five years to be as big as Manchester City. Mm. You just have to look at the sort of money that's involved in football now. And I don't think that really matters. I don't think they need to be competing with football anymore. There aren't the opportunities to compete with football as there were when they were taking fans... You know, that didn't want to go to the game because of things like hooliganism. but mm. well, there are obviously opportunities when it comes to things like access. You know, it's still very expensive to go and watch a Premier League football game. It isn't to go and watch a rugby league game. Mm. So there are still obviously lots of areas where the game can tap into that natural football community in this country. One of the things that I'm always torn between whether this is a benefit or a hindrance is that rugby league players are accessible. So, like you see them mm. shopping in Tesco, or you see them outside of the ground and you can get an autograph and all that sort of thing now on the one hand i think that removes a lot of celebrity or mythology around a player you know, you certainly probably wouldn't have seen Ellery Hamley doing his like, big shop on a Friday night in Wigan. And I think that was part of his charm and part of why people are interested in it. Yeah. Whereas you might be able to see, you know,
0: Liam Farrell doing it um, on a Saturday afternoon now. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, for a lot of people, that's part of Rugby League's charm. They think, oh, that's one of our big selling points. They're really accessible. Mm. So,
1: you know, there are opportunities to do it that way.
0: Yeah, I mean... The, the idea of comparing rugby league to the Premier League in the modern days is, is is laughable. It is ridiculous, but yeah, I guess the point to make is the the Premier League only exploded really in in the early nineties when when rugby league was was making a run. So I guess that that's a that's a point to make. And I guess another point to make. And I'm curious on your thoughts. Is you know the the byproduct of opening up markets and you know a, a purer form of capitalism is the gap between the haves and have nots inevitably widens and you tend towards, you know, oligopoly. And when you're talking about the UK sporting landscape, yes, you could argue British Rugby League mi- missed its brief window to become a, a big sporting player. But, it, you know, you could also argue that as sport was professionalised and commoditised that the status quo was was probably going to prevail, meaning football would eventually swallow up much of the oxygen and, and leave most of the rest, you know, clutching for air. I, I guess it's not dissimilar in Australia, the boom in Sporting broadcast rights of recent decades has most helped the sports that are already big Aussie rules, cricket, rugby league, the other sports kind of stay stuck in a cycle of what could have been and what might become one day down the track. And uh, I feel like you, you correct me if I'm wrong that rugby league's kind of in that bracket where you know what could have been and what might become one day down the track kind of stuck in this ongoing cycle. You know, maybe one day, maybe it could have been in, in a previous day, but in the present day you know what are we doing i think that's right i think that they are continually
1: stuck in the cycle i think the one takeaway i had from this book and you know i didn't live through this period so you know, i was born in 1990 there was a real optimism like i say that rugby league just had to package itself properly and take itself to new areas and it would succeed mm. and when it took itself to fulham in the early part of the 80s I think they were blown away by how successful it was in the first series. So they brought in a person called Colin Welland, who I look at in the book, who won an Oscar for Chariots of Fire, that film, if people have seen that, was a big TV star in this country as well as a playwright. And they brought him into front of this new project in Fulham. And it was the first time that anyone had really seen Rugby League in London, as I said earlier. Mm. And they were talking like nine, ten thousand 11,000, going watching them, they played Leeds in a Cup fixture, John Player Special Trophy, which is no longer with us, not just because of the cigarette ban advertising, but other reasons. Mm. Uh, it, you know, and I think there's 13,000, I think it's the record attendance still for a fixture of, of the London Cup. Mm. And this is all within the first 12 months. And people then start to believe, right, okay, we have absolutely nailed this. We've not expanded for 30 years or so. Right, where we're we going to go next? We're going to go Cardiff. We're going to go Carlisle. We're going to go to Kent. We're going to go to Nottingham, and all of a sudden, very, very quickly, it all—the expansion—all falls apart. Mm. Now, why did it? Why did it fail to expand? I still don't really know why Fulham didn't succeed after its initial buzz. Maybe it was because they were sort of in the second division and they were winning every game, and then when they come up to the top division, mm. they losing every week and they get relegated and then they're yo yoing for the rest of the decade. Classic discussion about relegation, you know. Mm-hmm. Had they been a franchise, what would have happened? Mm. There's another sort of crossroad moment that I allude to in the book at the end of the first season for Fulham. Fulham and Wigan are promoted to the first division. Fulham actually finish above Wigan, win more games the club that everyone's talking about, Fulham are going to become the club of the 1980s, Wigan, still not sure about them, Mm. and they both need to go and sign a player, and they go to Rochdale, and Fulham sign this young second-row called Sean Hur. no one's heard of him, he never became anything, and Wigan signed Henderson Gill, who was playing in the exact same match, and that literally overnight (laughs) revitalises Wigan as a club. Henderson Gill becomes the fan favourite, becomes the iconic winger of the decade, particularly at Wigan where he scores an iconic try in the 1985 Charles Cup final, scores an iconic try in the 1988 Test in Sydney, which is another moment. (laughs) And it's that classic crossroads, you know, had Fulham gone into Henderson Gill and seen his potential would he have driven London in the 1980s? Or would it have not even happened anyway? That's what you've always got. got to think about this when you write an issue book, like the counterfactuals, because you've got to pick out the moments that were important. Yeah. And I see that as a, you know, an important moment for Wigan. So maybe it was a, an important moment for Fulham mm. and, and the future you know, decline. Because mm. essentially from that moment on, they do decline. So expansion... A huge part of anything where you want to become a national game, and rugby league has just never nailed the expansion. You know, bar, you know, the Catalan Dragons, who, you know, people say are not really an expansionist club anyway because they play rugby league, you know, there for such a long time. Mm. We haven't really taken the game to any sort of new areas. So why would we become a national game? You mm. know, in the, in the, in Maurice Lindsay talks about in the, you know, early 90s when Super League sport, we're going to go Newcastle, we're going to go Birmingham, we're going to go Bristol. I think he did believe if we set up clubs and we throw enough money at it, ten, fifteen thousand people will come and watch because it's such a good product and it's like years ahead of rugby union at the time. Mm. But ultimately, we didn't do that, so now we're in a position where we're essentially fighting for the finite resources that we have left, which is your money from Betfred, your sky deal that reduces every single year i mean the fact that the sky deal goes down every time we go back to negotiate should start to tell them that it's a bit of a problem here yeah you know and <laughs> the sort of product that you have even the major broadcaster are going yeah it's not worth it as much as it was to us three or four years ago and it's actually going down and yeah you know that should be a huge wake-up call to the sport to say we're in decline, in it. but it's not. I think the people running the game are just absolutely delighted that they've got another Sky deal, and that kicks the can down the road in another four years. So you know, <laughs> we do this podcast in four years, talking about did <laughs> we miss a moment? We might be saying, "God, is rugby league actually going to survive this time?" Because yeah, I think we're hitting a critical period in this country.
0: Mm, maybe we'll be thinking back to the glory days of 2023 in four years' time. <laughs> <laughs> On the 2017 <laughs> World Cup final, with yes. Callum Watkins and
1: all that sort of yeah. rubbish. But um, yeah, you know, I mean, then we both, I mean, you can see it now, right? With the international game, you know, just from you know looking at it, you're probably starting to see England be excluded from things down under as well, right? If they're mm-hmm. going to do this tri-series at the end of this year, you know, Tonga probably a little bit disappointed that they're actually coming to the UK now because mm-hmm. the thing that you've got with Australia and Samoa and PNG and Fiji Mm. potentially in the future that looks brilliant Mm. and there's no reason for England to be part of that like why why would they need England to be part of that you know there's there's no benefit to the NRL of England doing well we could argue that there is but at the minute it's all about you know developing
0: your own players and developing those nations and there's a real danger that England Britain you know that once had this great rivalry with Australia it's just going to be left playing France, Wales Scotland Mm and all the rest of it. So it's unlucky in a way for England and Great Britain because this uh, Pacific Championship at the end of this year is essentially from my understanding like a like a part of the Australian government's kind of foreign policy arms. I think the foreign, uh, the Australian government might be funding this particular tournament to kind of, you know, build up their their kind of soft power in the Pacific. So it's kind of like all coming up as like dunces for the, in terms of UK rugby league unfortunately.
1: And that's great. Some soft power, and we can yeah. develop, you know, more nations, and and you know, revitalise international rugby league, and get the Kangaroos playing again. And that's fantastic. But from a purely English perspective, yeah. we know we had a World Cup in this country last last autumn mm. that was a real disaster. I th- and, you know it's probably something that we could really talk about in another, mm. you know, whole podcast in itself. Mm. Massively funded by the British taxpayer to the tune of you know whatever million it was. Low attendances. Ticket prices debacle. England not playing New Zealand, Australia, or Tonga. You know the fact that you can think you can host a, a, a World Cup in this country and not play the big teams and mm. hope to cut through on a national scale.
0: You know, as I say, if they'd won that semi-final, we'd have had a,
1: a final against Australia, which would have given you know, a bit of media narrative for seven days at least. And who knows? You know, bounce the ball, and the rest of the mm. England could have won that game. And we'd be talking now about the best World Cup ever, but it was such a, you know, it was such a poorly planned uh, event in this country anyway, that I think we're now feeling the ramifications of that, and I think people are looking at England as as an international team and as a a host nation and saying, well, why would we send our people over there? Mm. You know, you, you can't really run this thing properly. So we'll see, you know, can England turn it around and, Host the World Cup again. I don't know. I think I think we're gonna well there's a new schedule that's been announced, hasn't there? Do you think do you think with a chance that the Ashes will be revived
0: because of that? Uh well I, my understanding is there there's a chance that there's a, a tour happening next year. So, you know, let's let's remain hopeful and uh like I say, the, the, Holy, Grail the Holy Grail remains there. The Holy Grail remains. So think, no, it can be rebuilt. Actually, I think it's twenty twenty five Right, okay, twenty
1: twenty five england Australia rivalry is great, and i yep. you will know, be banging on for a while about bringing it
0: back the Ashes. So yes, I'm with we, you there.
1: As, a, as international rugby people that we are, we're in a, in a sort of like we'll believe it when we see it situation. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That. Yeah.
0: And,
1: <laughs> you know, we were meant to have the Ashes before, and then there was like COVID, wasn't there? And, it I know,
0: and always and something, and isn't
1: I it? Just I, just, I just can't believe we didn't play
0: Australia in the World Cup. You know, like we didn't yeah. find a way to have it as the opening game or. Because Australia,
1: you know, the kangaroos never come to this country. It's like once they've got their feet down at Heathrow Airport or Manchester Airport, it's like, right, you, you can't leave until you've played England. Yeah. We need you to play us I can't leave the official start. Now we'll gamble and we'll play Greece and we'll play France and we'll play DNG and then we'll
0: hope we play Australia because that's the thing we need. It's like, no, get them locked in early on. Yeah, I like, know.
1: That's what I would do if I was running the game but I'm obviously
0: not, so... It's a marker, I guess, of the tentativeness because I, I guess it's something that yourself and, and Tony Collins, I think, talking about rugby league's been at its best when it is being confident in itself. And I guess the marker of being confident in itself for that World Cup would have been let's play Australia first game and then you know we'll, we'll, we'll sort of manufacture it so that you know perhaps they might meet again in, in the final, depending on what happens. But in this case, it was like, no, let's sort of tippy-toe our way through the, through the tournament and then hope at the end that uh, things fall our way. But... And luckily, it didn't quite go well, away.
1: Yeah, I hate to talk about rugby
0: union again, but the
1: mm. rugby World Cup that's happening now in France. Mm. France wanted the first game to be against the All Blacks, yeah. and they didn't have to do that. They were drawn together, and they, you know, I think there was discussions about: Do you want to play them third, and we can build up to it, and we can have an, you know an, an easy opening game against you know Uruguay or whoever, because you know, you to get people to watch it anyway. So why waste a big hitter on the first game? Mm. They were like, no. Like host country get the All Blacks beat the All Blacks make this a tournament that everyone's interested in yeah. and the rugby league administrators in this country did the opposite ok there was a big match in Newcastle against Samoa mm-hmm. you know it was fantastic opening for a World Cup but then after that it was literally just like you know the, the big teams beating up on the small teams and we all understand that we want to develop the game and we want to you know bring on teams like Greece and no one would say you know, we don't want teams like Jamaica in there, and you know there was different stories to have with Jamaica playing New Zealand, but it just felt like constantly waiting for yeah. a big games to happen. And, and 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 the thing is, if you love rugby league, you're going to watch those you know drubbings. But when you're trying to get journalists on board, when you're trying to get new supporters on board, all the expansion things that we're talking about, yeah. you want England to play Australia, you want Wales to play Scotland, you want you know, Australia to play New Zealand, you want them to play time early on, all the time, because they very rarely play each other. Mm-hmm. So to get them all together in a country to be playing, you, you, I think we missed a real opportunity there. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that they'll never make that mistake again. I think, you know, if the, I don't know what the proposal is for that next World Cup in New Zealand, but you imagine it'll be streamlined down, and you imagine it'll be, right, let's make sure that we get the big games
0: in, because we need the money, we yeah. want the profile, the television, right, all the rest of it. So, yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: exactly. It's another World Cup mistake that
0: after 2000, we've. I think we've solved it though. That's the good news. Now, um... yeah, yeah, exactly. No need, for, no need for inquiry or consultation. <laughs> we've started Yeah, exactly. Now, Anthony, back to the book. Re- reading the book really makes you realise that the 80s really did change pretty much everything. Well, I'm. I'm that's maybe going a bit far, but it kind of did. I'm curious about your reflections about how it changed the working class. How did the characteristics of the working class change, in your opinion, from the late 70s to the mid-90s, and how was that reflected in rugby league? Yeah, I
1: think that's the, the, sort of the underpinnings you know, of narrative of this book alongside the rugby league story. And the reason why I wanted to write the book is that the working class does change in this period mm. quite dramatically. So obviously you have rugby league is played in the areas that we talked about where there's a lot of heavy industry. And those are the areas where there is the biggest unemployment, the biggest decline in terms of investment into public services. There's a lot of change within the working class also in terms of like the breakup of community. You know, this is the area of, you know, right to buy, which Australian listeners may or may not know, which was allowing people to buy the council houses, which was a huge policy you know, the era-defining policy of the Thatcher government, the thing that they constantly talked about was the right to buy. And that was enabling people who'd lived in social housing, council housing their entire lives to buy their house (laughs) at a hugely discounted price. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of Rugby League communities, a lot of Rugby League areas, a lot of Rugby League supporters lived in council housing. A lot of people did. You know, I think it was over 50% of the population did by the time that Margaret Thatcher came into office. Mm. And her policy was the flagship one. It was hugely popular amongst the people that bought the houses. It enabled a hell of a lot of social mobility because mm. you had people who never dreamed of owning their house, you know, buying the house for the first time. But at the same time, the government decides not to replenish that housing stock. So you essentially it's a one-time gift for one generation of people who've lived in the house to purchase it. By the end of the 1980s, there's a huge beginning of the housing crisis. And that huge sort of gap between rich and poor sort of develops around housing. You know, who has mortgages? Who lives in council housing? Who lives in council housing that is not being invested in anymore? And it becomes a real symbol of the age, the Mm. age of affluence. Mm -hmm. You know, I look at a sort of character like um, Harry Enfield's Loads of Money. I don't know if you know that character
0: that made it over to Australia. I'm not not personally aware. Comedian Harry Enfield, he created this sort of Thatcherite character
1: called Loads of Money, and it was just an ethics builder that had bought his council house, and he would just go around shouting, Like, loads of money, I've got loads of money. And it was a satire, mm. but it became the symbol of the age, right? And a hugely controversial sort of symbol of where Britain was at. And the divide was between the people who embraced Thatcherism, made lots of money you know, relatively by buying their house and, mm. you know, working in the private sector. And the old industrial working class, some of them who went on, you know, to, to new jobs, but others who basically end up sort of, you know, suffering on welfare and between jobs. I and mean, you see the rise of sort of things like zero-hour contracts, you know, in the, in the, mm-hmm. in the 90s, which is, you know, work, which you probably have in Australia, right, where you're sort of not employed by an organisation. You just have to go out and try and, like, get, you know, an hour's work here and there. Yeah, right. So you see the real loosening up of, of industry. You see the real loss of jobs for life. You see people moving from one area to another. But at the same time, you see the affluence and, you know, to bring it back to a rugby league person, I use Ellery Hamley as a symbol of the affluence of Thatcherism. Mm. Now I don't know what his political views are. I would never want to call him a Thatcherite. But he if you know, if you didn't want to, but he he was he was um you know, he does something like he says, I'm not gonna work, I'm gonna invest in property because that means that I can train when I want and I'm not tied to a job. Mm. And that's the sort of you know he's the first professional rugby league player in this country and he can kind of do that because he can train when he wants if he wants to go for a run at midnight he doesn't have to worry about getting up at 5am to go and work down the mines or in a factory mm-hmm. as a lot of other players did mm-hmm. so he's sort of embracing this new idea of you know home ownership as well so there is a, as al- always a, you know two sides to the story i didn't want this just to be a
0: You know, everyone in the North in the 1980s was hammered hard. Mm, mm. You know, there are two sides to it. And rugby
1: league, obviously, is is part of that
0: too. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as we know, you know, part of the UK rugby league story is that the sport has long sought the embrace of the British mainstream. And besides a few flashes, which we've spoken about... It hasn't really worked out that way, but the game has never stopped trying. As you know, and as you've written, some of the narrative around Brexit uh, included the positioning of traditional rugby league towns as staunchly pro-Brexit. Now, that's a a gross generalisation, but it's been part of the narrative nonetheless. Do you think that narrative has entrenched perceptions surrounding rugby league in other parts of Britain and perhaps impacted rugby league's attempt to grow in recent years? Or is that too long a bow? Are we too far beyond rugby league's uh, potential to, to grow again. Am I am I sort of taking that a bit too far?
1: No, I think you're right. I think you're, you're spot on. And I, one of the things about the book that I wanted to do was I wanted to present, you know, an image of the North that was true of its people and sort of represented not just its, like, you know, the, the stereotypical image that people have of the North and its people from the South. Mm. And rugby league is ultimately part of that. You know, people in this country... They take the mick out of Rugby League, they you know, they laugh at it, Mushy Beat sponsorship, there's a Twitter account called Amateurish Rugby League, which sort of sums up the way that a lot of people view Rugby League mm. today as an amateurish game that can't really present itself in a way that is sort of modern and dynamic, in a way that, you know, Boxing can and Rugby Union can, and snooker and cricket and all those other sports. The 1980s is obviously a period where I think that rugby league is well ahead of other sports in terms of the way it presents itself don't forget rugby league is the first major sport really to understand that B Sky B is going to be the future mm. and that the old terrestrial model has changed and they throw in a lot with Sky Sports in, in the early 90s BSB actually first before Sky Sports mm. in 1990 and it's a bit of a gamble because People had always assumed that you would be out of it on free to tour. There's also a deal when they sign up with BSP that means the Yorkshire and the Lancashire Cups will not be televised mm. because they've got the rights to it, but they're not interested in it because it's seen as old-fashioned. Mm. So Rugby League is sort of ahead of the curve in terms of its image. And when you've got people like, so I, I recall people like Tony Wilson, who may or may not be, fam- you know, familiar with Australian listeners, but he's this sort of, iconic manchester music you know letharia or whatever you want to call it there's a film called 24 hour party people which is uh, oh, right. based on him yep. starring steve Coogan, right and he's the guy who sets up factory records in manchester and yeah, yeah. new order and joy division all these great bands and he's you know just a hugely charismatic and important figure in the rise of manchester in the 1980s 1990s. the half the end of nightclub Rise of ecstasy, the rise of drugs, he's central to that. And he becomes a huge rugby league fan, right, in the 1980s and starts talking about it. I think it's partly because he was like an outsider. Mm. He hated the South and he loved the North. So any opportunity he had to be like, the North is better than the South, he would like take it. And he starts hyping up rugby league on his shows and he gets them on to sort of launch the Great Britain jersey. He starts to read the gossip columns, you know. Which I have the Manchester Evening News in the eighties and nineties. Ellie Hamley and Matt and Fire, are there. you know who are they out with this week, which celebrity are they hanging out with. <clears throat> Sean Edwards as well. You know, rugby league becomes part of this sort of counterculture uh, a little bit. Mm. Now we're a million miles away from that. Now I can't deny that. Like rugby league is is whatever cool is in British sport in terms, and, and, and that's it. Rugby league is the complete opposite <laughs> of that. Now I don't know whether that is because of things like Brexit and the way that the North is viewed. Because the North still... I mean, look at Manchester City, right? Manchester City and Manchester United. Mm. Harlan plays for Man City. He's the coolest player in the Premier League. Mm. There's still loads of cultural capital around a city like Manchester. But as you move out into sort of, yeah, the Brexit areas, as I say, when everyone thinks there's a problem with Britain... They go to Wigan to write about it. Mm. The day after the Brexit vote happened, the New York Times sent a whole pack of reporters to Wigan to take some shots of some rundown housing estate and, mm. you know, some, the Heinz factory where people work. And there's an assumption that those areas are grim, in decline, can't be revived. There's a lot of snobbishness in this country around the key government mantra which was this thing called leveling up i don't know if you've heard about this yeah i heard Morris, of that yeah like we're going to level up the country mm. now there's a big debate about whether it was possible to do globalized marketplaces meet post-industrial town how can you revive an area like featherstone and bring it the new jobs bring it tech jobs bring it all the rest of it when people want to live in the cities they want to live in Leeds, they want to live in manchester the young people live in london Mm. as i did myself you know i left wigan to go to london so i'm part of that sort of whole discussion around it Mm. so brexit opened the door for that you definitely have more debate about how we revive these towns than you would have before and i think rugby league can absolutely tap into that Mm -hmm. because of the shift around the red wall as well you know the Red Wall, where yeah. lots of areas where people voted Labour traditionally moved to Conservatives. Mm. Labour now have to engage with those
2: towns again. I was doing a, another show to promote the book, mm. and one of the people told me that Keir Starmer, who is the leader of the Labour Party and mm-hmm.
1: potentially going to be the next Prime Minister, he goes around telling people that he's a massive rugby league fan because he was at uni- uh, university in Leeds in the 1980s. Now, I'm pretty confident that he would not have gone to a game, <laughs> at least in the 1980s. I mean, if he wants to come back to you, John Owen and say, you know, I was there and he's got evidence of watching, you know, John Gallagher and Andrew Ettinghouse and all the rest of it, all power to him. Yeah. But what I think is happening is that politicians are now jumping on the rugby league bandwagon and saying, well, if we want to win the support of these people, we've got to show some sort of... Love for this sport, Mm. and there's where your opportunity lies for the game. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got to get in with these politicians, like you're saying about the soft power in Australia right now in Papua New Guinea. Mm. How can rugby league say to government, if you invest in the grassroots, in the infrastructure, in the economy, we've got this product that the people love and that the people engage with at a weekend that can be part of your, you know cultural offer to the country mm, mm. I think rugby has got a huge role to play in society in general we know how important it is to you know working class people who you know often don't really have much else to do with their time but the rugby in some of these areas how can we harness that protect it uh, maintain it for the future politics will play a big role in that in terms of the funding mm. and that's probably where your opportunity comes to sort of refashion its image away from the negative into a really positive one for
0: yeah the wide society yeah fascinating stuff well uh, we could literally go on for hours Anthony but we are uh, done for time and that's it's probably a good thing as there's still plenty in the book for readers to discover that we haven't had a chance to to cover and delve into so uh, thanks for taking the time to chat and thank you uh, for such a distinguished contribution to the rugby league literary canon Anthony Broxton thanks for joining the progressive rugby league podcast absolute
1: pleasure mate Anytime.
2: progressive rugby league
0: there you have it ladies and gents anthony broxton can't wait to see what's in store for him next all right let's call it for another day we haven't been around much in 2023 but let the records show the enthusiasm to have interesting rugby league related chats remains as high as ever so when the time is right we'll be there in your feed so keep an eye out thanks as always until we next meet somewhere in our local class struggle rugby me and see ya